Welcome to the Bring Her Hope podcast. I'm Bethany Bravery, and I am thrilled that you are here. Each week, I invite a girlfriend on the podcast to share not only the story that God is writing for her, but the story God is redeeming in her life. I can't wait for you to meet each and every one of these amazing women who I know will inspire you to also live out the story that God's calling you to, and to give you hope that He will be faithful to redeem your story as well. My guest today is Lindsay Cooper. Lindsay is married to the love of her life and has three beautiful children who keep them on their toes. Lindsay is the director and founder of Identity Dance Company, Identity Events and Entertainment, and now 180. She is also a spokesperson for Hope Ranch Ministries, choreographer for the Miss Lane County Princess Program, as well as being involved in various other events and charities around the community. In college, Lindsay found herself in a different place than she ever thought she would be, a victim of human sex trafficking. But God rescued her out and has redeemed her beautiful story. Get ready for the adventure of your life with this episode and learn how it is never too late to turn your life around. I'm telling you, if you can pull over and get a journal, take notes, this girl has had some wisdom. Um, God has walked her and redeemed her story. And so, Lindsay, why don't you take us on your journey? Yeah, um, my journey starts about when I was 13. I started dancing because a friend of mine invited me to a dance class she was taking. And the moment I took that class, I was hooked. Um, Something about dance made me happy. Um, At the time, I was playing on a traveling basketball team. I was doing soccer. I was doing piano and also volleyball, and I literally quit everything to dance. Um, This wasn't the most exciting news to my dad. Um, He thought that I was going to go to high school and college for basketball, but something just sparked me um, when I took that dance class, and um, I knew that it was something that I was supposed to pursue. And then went to high school, and I did high school dance team. And like any other 14-year-old, I began to explore the, the world of dating. And I got into um, a couple different relationships in high school that I thought were actually pretty serious. And um, and both ended in heartbreak. And, you know, at, at 14 and 17 years old, you know, you question whether or not you're really in love or, or whether or not you really felt like this was the one. But for me, I had really had a lot of um, morals and been raised very well to know that, you know, when you, you feel that feeling like this could be your husband. And so anyway, the the process of me just going through that heartbreak was really um, disappointing, especially when I knew that I kind of stood up for my own morals and my own um, beliefs in both of those situations and had gotten rejected because of it. So I, you know, graduated high school with kind of this um, skewed version of, of who I was um, because I kind of let these a uh, couple heartbreaks began to define me and um, went into my college years thinking I was going to have a fresh start. I started majoring in dance at LCC. Um, I actually was really happy and had some new opportunities um, and was actually living in a, a church-sponsored house from Faith Center called Onyx House. It was there that I met a couple girls and also one that didn't live at the house, and um, I actually began to um, party with several of them. And, you know, for me, who had grown up Christian and knowing that these things were, quote, unquote, wrong, 
it felt okay because I was doing it with the girls who were also going to Bible study with me on Friday night. You know, I was, I was, uh, I was, I felt justified. Um, but what was really disheartening in this situation was I was the only one that would ever get caught. I was the only one that ever get, um, talked to in a sense. And ultimately I ended up being, um, kicked out of, um, the Christian house that I was living at the time. Um, you know, with, with that, I felt rejected not only by man, but by believers, even rejected by God. I thought that I had really messed up. And then at fast forward to 20 years old, um, I, you know, had kind of thrown myself into pursuing dance at that point. Um, it had led me to audition for all kinds of groups from Blazer Girls to U of O dance team. I worked my tail off um, to be what was required at both of those auditions. And after getting rejected several times, I just decided that dance wasn't worth it and I quit it entirely. I just thought in my head, you know, these same feelings of rejection, like I wasn't good enough, I wasn't worthy to be a dancer, and I just decided to work and find something else that I could be passionate about. And I definitely found something else to occupy my time, and that was um, I just fell head over heels into the party life, um, drinking guys, dancing at bars um, almost every night of the week, you name it, I was into it. Um, I was completely irresponsible as a result. And after getting fired from, from two jobs in a row, uh, kind of embarrassing, but after getting fired from that second job, I remember calling my friend and through lots of tears telling her, I just want out of here. I want to disappear, start over. I want to get out of this town. And so, um, I coped with this tragedy how I always did. I got drunk and I passed out and woke up the next day and I was still very much jobless and um, really with no no hope in front of me. Um, it was then that my roommate told me about a job that she had done. And I quote her when I say, she said, it's with this guy. He's a salesman. He travels a lot. You get to go to all these places and just do a little bit of paperwork at night. Plus, you get paid lots of money. It's awesome. You'll love it. And I was sold. And I knew that what she was telling me, I felt actually as if it was kind of an answer to an unspoken prayer. Just like, even though I was so far away from God at the time, I felt like I had been hurt. Like I said, I want to get out. And then here's this opportunity to get out. So I met up with this guy, um, and he told me the gist of, which was not much different than what my roommate had said. He said things like, after a long day of sales, like, who wants to do paperwork? And that's where you come in. Plus, it gets really lonely out on the road. I need a companion sometimes to, like, hang out with or go to dinner, and I'll take you to everywhere, all the big cities. We'll go to the Statue of Liberty. We'll go to the Mall of America. We'll do all these things. And um, so I agreed. And plans were put in place for me to leave with him on a five to six month um, road uh, journey, I guess, or I guess you would say five to six month contract to travel with him. So in the days before we were set to leave, he took me out to eat again and took me shopping, bought me all kinds of stuff. He said, you got to look good if you're going to work for me. He teased me. Um, He would tell me I was pretty. 
tell me I was really fun and that he couldn't wait to have me out on the road. Um, he even took me to places like Victoria's Secret, bought me bras, underwear. Um, nothing about this even gave me one inkling of red flag. I actually just felt like I was being spoiled by someone who actually saw me and thought I was cool, and it felt good. Um, and then the day I went to say goodbye to my parents, they were moving into a new house, and I had no idea they didn't like this guy, this idea, this job, not one bit, but it seemed to me as they were too distracted to even ask many questions. Uh, my dad said, keep your cell phone on you, and, and then my new boss said, oh, she won't need that. You can just call her online. And so I remember handing my phone over to my dad um, and not even taking a wallet. I, I don't even remember having a driver's license, a debit card, or anything like that. Um, and I just remember taking uh, my suitcase, and we were off. Um, the first leg of the trip started, and it was set to be three weeks long, and we drove to Colorado. And on the first night in the hotel, we went out to dinner, had a few drinks, and then he came on to me, and we ended up sleeping together. The next day, I called my roommate, hoping that maybe this information would be a shock to her, and she would give me some sort of advice on how to proceed, because in my head, I thought, oh, shoot, I just slept with my boss. Like, this is going to either be a very awkward next five months or, like, what do I do kind of thing. I was asking for her almost reassurance and affirmation that this was something that shouldn't have happened and that I needed to kind of restitute it. So I was very shocked when I heard what she said. She basically said, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you that's just part of the deal. And I was like, um, what? And she's like, you just, you just go with it. I mean, it does pay a lot of money. Remember, he takes you to so many cool places. Just don't think about the other stuff. And I remember standing there. My heart was racing, and I couldn't think straight. I was staring at him across the room. And he was, I think, checking us out of that hotel, or else he wouldn't have wanted me to be on the phone without him in earshot. And I thought about what my alternative was. First, I thought, well, going home, no, no way. I wanted to get out, and this was my chance. So I took a deep breath. In my heart, I just said, I can do this. And after all, it was just a job for her, for my roommate, but maybe this time I'm special to him. And I was wrong. I wasn't special. I was hired, I was coerced, and I was groomed to do exactly what he wanted. A companion, yes, but much more than that. Basically, the paperwork and the companion gig was just a cover. In essence, I was a real-life prostitute. I know that's a heavy, heavy word, but this is my story. So here I am, caught in a job. I was lonely. I was isolated. He would barely tell me when my parents called. And he had to be in the room, like I said earlier, when I called them or anyone else. I could never be alone unless he was doing his sales appointments. And sometimes he left me alone in the hotel room at night with strict orders not to leave. And after several weeks of this, he began to show his real colors. He was very angry. He drank a lot, did drugs, and would often get mad at me, verbally and emotionally abuse me, saying very derogatory things. 
And I had to do what he wanted whenever he wanted. And one day he said to me, now remember, when we get back, we are not in a relationship. In fact, this didn't happen. And then sometimes I would participate in the drinking and drugs with him, thinking it would make it better, and maybe he would treat me nicer if he thought I was, quote-unquote, cooler. But that didn't work. It just made me feel worse, and it just didn't work. (laughs) Um, At this point, we were about two and a half months in, and I would estimate about 90% of me had died. I had no recollection of who I used to be. Since I made the decision, since I had the desire to get out, I brought it on myself. That's what I thought. But then again, I didn't grasp the reality of what was happening. Like in the moment, I had no idea what I was being used for. Like I would have never, ever come to grips with the fact that I was being used as a prostitute or like a a personal satisfaction thing for him. Um until many, many years later. So while I was in this situation, I just was living each day, trying just to keep going, just to survive and just try not to make waves in a sense. I I definitely walked on broken glass all the time, tried to make him happy, made sure that he wasn't upset, like basically tried to be one step ahead of him all the time, but it seemed as if I could never get there. So one day I was sitting in the car waiting for him as I did for hours and hours a day. And while I was waiting, I had brought my journal with me on the trip. And I'm not really sure why I had done that. Um, I hadn't written, prayed, or talked to God in over a year. I had become so quiet. And anybody that knows me well knows me that that is very rare. (laughs) But this day I had picked up my journal and began to write. And at first I wrote about what we had done in the past few days. I I really believed that I was trying to normalize what was happening. I wrote about places we had been. I recorded a lot of the the milestones and the things that he took me to or just the the landmark Statue of Liberty, Mall of America, all those things he did, he did take me to. I was trying to remember just what was good about the trip. And as I was writing, I ended up turning my writing into a prayer. And I remember saying, God, If you get me home safe, I will dance, and I'll dance for you. And at this point, I had at least a month to two months left to go on the trip. I I can't really remember. Time is kind of a blur when it comes to this whole thing. But specifically, in that journal entry that day, I did not ask God to be sent home early. I specifically asked to be get home safe. I quickly put my journal away as he was approaching the car. And the next day, well, in my mind, it's the next day. And for dramatic purposes, it's really cool to think that it's the next day. But in all honesty, I don't remember. But it was very, very soon after I had written those words to the Lord. He handed me an envelope. And I said, what's this? And he said, open it. I didn't imagine it was a paycheck since he had paid me wirelessly and to my parents back home. I opened it and it was a plane ticket. I asked him sheepishly, where are we going? Trying not to show that my disappointment was very evident because I just at that point was really tired of traveling and I was tired because at that point, I think we had been to 16 different states and 
I was in a different hotel room every other two or three nights. And it just got really exhausting. So when I saw the plane ticket, I just assumed that we were off to the next part of the trip. And so I said, where are we going? And he said, we aren't. You are. And I looked back at the ticket, and it was just one ticket, and it was for a flight one way for that day, Eugene, Oregon. And I didn't know what to think because I didn't want to get too excited in front of him because, again, like, I was afraid of him. But I was elated. I honestly, I just packed. There wasn't many words between the two of us. He drove me to the airport. I think he tried to give me a hug. And then that was it. I can tell you right now, like, I have no recollection of that plane ride home at all. And I don't, I don't know why. (laughs) I would like to know why I somehow have blocked that out. Um, and honestly, I, I can tell you that I was free, but I had no idea what I was being set free from. Because like I said earlier, I did not know what his intentions were. I thought that this was just a really weird situation that went wrong. And that somehow I had, like everything else in my life, messed it up. But at that point, I didn't care. I just wanted to get home. And I would love to tell you that I came home free and joyful and immersed myself in the Lord. And then now here we are. But that wouldn't be the truth. I returned home to someone else living in my apartment, in my room. I had been paying rent and someone else had been freeloading. Granted, it was a mutual friend of me and my roommate's but. The apartment was a mess. It looked like no one had cleaned in three months. Um, I remember just walking in and it just smelling and it just felt so gross. And all I wanted was my own bed after being gone for so long and it wasn't available to me. And I remember calling my parents and going with them, staying with them a while. And, and I, all I remember is that those were very dark days. And I remember um, at one point after a few days, maybe even a week, starting to miss him. I started missing the hotels. I, I missed the stupid laundromats, the strangers that I wasn't allowed to talk to, and the hotel clerks, and just the people that I kept thinking, I wonder what this looks like to them. Like, I wonder if anybody sees that this is off and weird and you know just even in the midst of missing him and missing that life because that's what I was accustomed to I remembered my prayer and what I had promised to God and that I would dance again so I found a dance class and this was prior to Google era so this was the internet had just come out if anybody can fathom that. So I had no idea where to go or what to do, but I had heard of a hip-hop class at 24-Hour Fitness. So, I mean, I must have actually called them or just known about it, but it was a hip-hop aerobics class. And I remember I went and tried it and I I hid in the back. And um, I remember very vividly not wanting to look at myself in the mirror because I hadn't 
danced in over a year and a half and I just really let myself go, become very depressed and I just thought, oh, I'm so rusty. I'm so out of shape. I'm just so like disgusting, you know? And so I remember trying so hard to just keep my head down and just fulfill what I said I would do. And that's, I said I would dance. So just get it over with, you know? And evidently that was not in what God had planned because the instructor immediately recognized me and she was an old dance friend from my years of, um, LCC dance program. And she was overly excited to see me. And I was very embarrassed. I was shy and held my head down for most of the class. And after the class, uh, she came out to me and gave me a hug. And I can't remember if that's actually how it went, but in my mind, that's how it happened. Um, I knew I needed to come, keep coming back, and it was my only option for dance. And no matter how messed up I was for that one hour, I forgot about everything. I believe they were either my second or third class. This, this friend, this instructor called me over afterwards and asked me, hey, I can't teach this class anymore. Would you want to? You'd be perfect. And I just, everything inside me screamed no. And then she wouldn't take that for an answer, and I sheepishly agreed to meet her boss. I auditioned to be a teacher with absolutely no experience, nothing on a resume that would give this woman any opportunity to hire me, but she hired me on the spot. And then from that moment on, every single dance teaching position and opportunity came from that class. And I ended up within a year teaching at a dance studio, teaching kids. Within two years after that, I was teaching it simultaneously at another studio. Um, and then within that, I was leading a, a local hip-hop group of college kids. And, and then it was just one thing after another, after another, after another. Um, and it felt like the momentum was so fast that I should just grab on and just go with it. But at the same time, I was really struggling with um, just kind of having a two-faced life. Like, I was in church, and I would stay there for about three to six months, and then I would disappear. And I would party, and I would party hard. And I would still keep teaching, and I would still keep up everything that I was supposed to be doing because I didn't want to lose any of it. But I was living a double life. And... Within that time, I found myself in a situation that um, was very unfortunate, and I was raped. Um, again, thought that a friend was going to be there with me and left me alone with two guys, and I ended up being raped. And um, I honestly, again, just want to bring out that I didn't view that trip that I went on as a type of human trafficking, prostitution, or anything. So I legitimately didn't ever talk about it. I never got any sort of guidance or, or help for it. And I just tried to keep living. And as much as dance gave me something as an outlet, it wasn't enough for me to overcome, like what was happening inside, which was this deep, deep hurt. And ultimately, you know, we use the word trauma these days, 
but really my body went through a type of trauma yeah. and, but I just had no idea and I didn't know what to call it. So I think with the, me trying to live the double life, it was in a way me having control. Like I didn't have control over anything else but my decisions. And so if I wanted to be this flimsy for six months, I could be this flimsy for six months and I could keep it up pretty good. And then I would fall over and be the other Lindsay for three months, six months, whatever. So um, by the time I was 23, so around two years after I had gotten back from this trip, I met a family um, that befriended me and they just felt a very strong connection to me. They used to cook me dinner and, and then one day they invited me to church and I remember, I have no idea why I said yes. I mean, I had no reason to go to church with them. I mean, I loved them, and I, I, I loved what they were for me, but, I mean, church had been a no-go for me for a while. And I remember going to this new church, and I just was like, what is this place? And I remember I got there late. I was always late to everything, and they were in the front row. And I was devastated when I saw they were in the front row. I was like, I cannot walk up to the front row and slide in without being noticed. Like, this is, this is not okay. Like, I wanted to just kind of hide in the back and then say that I went and then get the heck out, you know? So worship had already started, and almost as soon as I came in, the pastor stopped the song and said, there's someone in here who God is waiting on, so I want our team to play this song until that person looks up at me. So then I'm thinking, oh, great. Okay, so there's somebody in here, and this is probably going to take forever. <laughs> and I'm literally sitting there and just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then I remember thinking, come on, whoever you are, just look up at him so we can just, like, move on with this. Because I grew up in a church where this kind of stuff didn't happen. Like, stuff wasn't interrupted like this by the Holy Spirit. And so I just was like okay, whatever this is, like, get over it. You know, like, whoever this is, what, can we just get on with the service? And then I remember my whole body, like, from head to toe, I kid you not, got really warm. And I felt like I was being hugged by somebody. So then in my mind, I was trying to actually reject this feeling, and I looked up to see if anybody had made eye contact with the pastor because I was like, Let's get this over with, right? So I looked up, and he was standing right in front of me. And he said, it's you. God's waiting on you. And I just started weeping like a little baby. <laughs> and I rededicated my life to the Lord that day. And I, again, would love to tell you that, just fast forward to here we are now, you know, 14 years later, and or 16 years later, and, and here we are. But... Six days after I rededicated my life to the Lord, I was drinking with a friend and driving up to Portland, which is a whole other story, but I got in a horrible accident, and I felt as if the Lord literally spared my life, and it was starting to really sink in that He wanted my attention. Um, at that point, I couldn't stand firm on any one thing, but God never took His eyes off of me. 
So then throughout the next course of the, the year or so, I decided I wanted to be a nanny and leave the job that I had, which was for my dad. And I just knew that I wasn't cut out to work for my dad as much as I love him. I was not cut out to work at a desk. Um, I just can't do it. So a few days after I had just mentally declared that, a mom at the studio I was teaching at approached me looking for advice on if I knew anybody who would want to be a nanny. And I said, yes, I want to. And so I met their family and was hired. I loved that job. I didn't always do it well, but I was still struggling with who I was and all the guilt and shame that haunted me day in and day out. But I wanted to be better for them and better for myself, better for the Lord. And somewhere in that chaos, I met my husband. And funny thing is, I met him at a bar. And it looked like, from the outside, it would just be another one of my kind of like notches in my list. Um, And it wouldn't be anything that lasted. But there was something very different about him. Like, he would talk to me for hours and never try to touch me. And I had never experienced that at all. Um, We dated for a few months. And... I found out I was pregnant and unmarried, and then I thought, man, now I've really messed up my life, and now everybody's going to see, and I can't hide it. But, praise God, it was in that moment when I realized that God had actually entrusted me with new life, that I had made a firm and final decision in that moment that I am never, ever, ever not going to follow Jesus with my whole heart. So here I am today, three kids later, 14 and a half years married, loving Jesus, um, trying to be faithful in everything that we do. And I think the only reason I get emotional about it is because God's purpose for my life stood, but the enemy still had a very real purpose to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God was doing. And the part that is hard for people and myself even to swallow is that God allowed all of it. And I just think sometimes, wow, all those years I thought that God didn't love me or I had messed up beyond repair. He was actually just continuing to sew and weave and orchestrate and put in place and create something that would not only transform my life, but point others to his goodness. So, you know, I continue to tell my story regardless of the situation or the audience, whether it be an audience of one or a thousand, Mm -hmm. because I know that if I had not realized what had happened to me, and this is a part that, I guess I sort of skipped over, but I guess it's fine to say it right now. I had two kids 
before I realized what had happened to me on that trip. And it was 12 years post the situation that it dawned on me what happened because I was listening to my friend who was speaking at a retreat, a church retreat, and I, she was using all the same verbiage, all the same language, all the same everything. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's what happened to me. And now it was so hard for me to come forward with it at first because I didn't feel like it was relevant anymore. I'm like, well, it just happened. That was the past. And, you know, being in church and and all these things, you know, people say a lot about, you know, forget what's in the past, like move on to the future. You've been redeemed from that. But I think there's a lot to be said about when you don't deal with what has happened to you, it really can creep up on you and it can attempt to steal, kill and destroy you many years later. So I decided to try to face it head on and I didn't really know how. Um, I guess I just started talking with like women at church and just one-on-one with some people I really trusted and, and started telling my story. And then I remember by the time 2016 rolled around, which was not that long ago, only like three years ago, I remember somebody telling me very point blank that, that I would be sharing my story like publicly very soon like prophetically speaking over me. And I was like, okay, I'm totally willing to do that. And I think, I think I've lost count now in the last three years, how many times I've, I've shared this and shared what God did. Cause it started from that day that she said that I got invited to do, you know, one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. And then it just becomes this thing where you're like, Oh my gosh, Lord, like you really did redeem me in order to like restore others as well. And I want people to know too, that it doesn't matter how long it's been. It doesn't matter if it was yesterday or 20 years ago, if you have not faced it and healed from it head on and I'm still healing today. Like it's not something I'm going to all of a sudden wake up one day and be like, I think I'm completely over that. Like stuff comes up all the time where I have to rewire the way that I have thought or felt. I mean, even rejection in regular everyday people that I deal with on a daily basis, whether it be through work or ministry or whatever, if there is rejection there, I am immediately triggered to all of that rejection in that time of my life. Now that's not their fault. That's something that I get to, to do battle with, with the Lord, you know? So it's been quite a journey of healing and I, and I'm still on it and there is no right way to heal. There is no A, B, and C. I just know that I've stayed really close to Jesus and every time something does come up, I take it to, to a few women that I have in my life that are really trusted. I take it to the Lord, of course, first and foremost, and I just let let him heal me. And it is a process. But I know with all of my heart that it is 100% never too late to turn your life around. And that is my, my catchphrase, I guess you could say, for my ministry 180. And, and it's becoming apparent to me, especially recently, that God is not finished with me telling my story. Wow. 
Lindsay, uh, what would you say your perspective of your identity is now versus 14 years ago, 16 years ago? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I used to be, and still struggle with this to this day, but it's gotten better, is that, you know, I've always kind of been a performer, always been really um, in front of people and very much, um, I like to make people laugh. I like to make people happy. Um, I like to move people deeply with dance or words or, you know, whatever. But then it was like, I didn't think any of that mattered and that anybody saw me, including God. And I know it's not about us. Like we're, we're just vessels for the, for the Lord. But I think on some level, your identity, you've got to be confident in who Jesus says you are before you can allow yourself to kind of be used by him. And even if it's just the tiniest shred of confidence, I mean, he wants to redefine who you are. And I think I was just trying to prove myself and honestly have been for many, many years, but I've come to a point, I actually just turned 40 a few months ago and felt like I was done proving myself anymore. Like I am a daughter of the King and he has an assignment for me while I'm here on this earth and I'm going to do my best to live each day to fulfill it. Um, with the healing process, and I know you said that you're not done, we are all a work in progress. Did you experience the the need to learn how to forgive yourself through this story? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> um, there was all kinds of guilt and shame for many years. I think that that is ultimately what I was trying to cover up directly after coming back from that experience. And then just trying to cover it up with what I knew how to do best, which was party and just trying to forget. And I think with the guilt and shame came just a fear of actually facing it head on. And what I realized is that, you know, God, God does not condemn me one iota. He loves me and hates every single thing that has happened to me. And there is no guilt, condemnation, or shame when it comes to him. And those were things that the enemy was really trying to make a part of my daily uh, life, (laughs) part of my daily story, to prevent me from wanting to take any risk, from wanting to take any sort of step forward into what God was calling me to do, It, it it has in the past actually prevented me from talking to certain people or, or feeling nudges in the Holy Spirit and, and not following them just because of, of fear that resulted from guilt and shame. And I can say that I don't live like that anymore. Um, Lindsay, I know that you're a spokesperson for Hope Ranch Ministries, which some people may not know um, what that is. But what I feel like we're supposed to do right now is there may be people (laughs) that are literally walking out your story right now. And like you don't even realize that 
this is a potential of human sex trafficking. So what are some signs? Um, what would you say to her who's asking a question right now? She's listening and her heart's racing and she's not knowing what's going on. She's kind of looking at her situation and wondering if she's in the same thing. What would you say to her? Yeah, um, there's practical signs um, that, you know, you get trained for in this type of situation. Um, the the loss of control. Uh, no phone, no no way of having money, no um, no access to outside world. That, those kinds of things are very obvious. Okay, um, a lot of gifts, a lot of keeping things looking like you're being rewarded, you're being um, elevated, and or being um, kept quiet through uh, just the way that the person might be uh, providing for you. Um, maybe just your basic needs are met, like food, shelter, clothing. Um, and maybe it's not extravagant, um, but those are definite ways in which someone can really have that hook into you because if you don't have any other option, like if you really aren't, like you're feeling like you're in a season of no hope and, and you don't have anybody that could help you with those things, that is the ultimate place where they like to swoop in. They, they, go, for, they go for weak. They go for somebody who's not confident, who, who has had recent turmoil in their life that has nowhere else to turn, or so they think. But there's always somewhere to turn. Uh, those, are, those are practical things. Um, one thing that really I always go back to is what he said to me um, that day that he said, now remember when we get back, this didn't happen. We were not in a relationship. Or he said the other way around, we are not in a relationship and this didn't even happen. So if they are trying to dumb down, water down what's actually happening and or telling you not to tell anybody or really cutting you off from people and isolating you, that is a tall tell sign that there is some sort of abuse going on and that you should seek help. And where um, there's people listening from all over the United States, um, what, what would be your recommendation? If they were to get on Google right now, what would they do to seek help? What would be their first step? Gosh, if you're not involved in, in like a church or, or that kind of thing, you don't have anybody in your life that you could directly reach out to, I would say anything that has to do with people who give respite and restoration to victims of trafficking, um, which like Hope Ranch is here locally, um, you know, she, she allows, the, the director of that allows uh, girls to live in her house until they're ready to transition themselves into, into life. Um, and she just loves on them. And that's, that's the thing. I think people think that once they bring their story to life, like they're going to have to go through all this counseling and all this stuff. And, and, you know, each situation is different, but really you just need somebody to love on you. And there's plenty of people who will do that. Um, I mean, in the extreme cases, I would say call law enforcement or the non-emergency line and just say like, this is what's happening to me. Like, can somebody come help me? And they will. It's mm, great advice. Thank you so much. Lindsay, if you could sit down with your 20-year-old self, what would you say to her today? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I had seen that question uh, prior to you and I sitting down, and I thought, that is such a good question. <laughs> um, 
you know, 20 years old, man, that was when everything was was spinning out of control. I would say, you know, I think I've heard a lot of people say they would tell their younger self, it's going to be all right. And I don't necessarily think I would say that to, to my 20-year-old self. I would say that, you know, God loves you. You're not a reject. You are purpose for this life. And God has an incredible story for you. And, you know, I always say this, too, and, and this may or may not sound weird in a way to people who have gone through tragedy and wish it would have never happened, but I don't regret what has happened to me to be honest. And that's a place that I want everyone to come to when they have suffered from something, because ultimately we look at Jesus and he suffered the worst, the worst kind of torture for us. And we know that one day we are going to be free from all of this, from all the pain, all the tragedy, all the suffering. And so our first thought should not be what kind of God would do this to me. Our first thought which is not always our first thought because we're human. It's okay, Lord, like if you suffered, I can too. Not and not stay in a situation playing victim and just saying, okay, I have no other way. I must just be suffering for the Lord. Like that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying looking back on things that you have been restored out of, or even things you're walking through right now and be like, this is not my story. This is not the end. This is just a chapter, and God wants to redeem it and use it for other people. So how would I be sitting here talking to you? How would I be having a dance studio where I believe that a lot of what we do is more preventative for the girls and giving them confidence to be able to not find themselves in a situation like this? Like, how would I be a mom to my daughter and and my sons and, and teach them the right way to to be raised and the right way to treat people? How would I launch this 180 thing, which whatever it is, it really isn't anything yet, but how would I sit across from somebody who has been raped over and over and over or, or trafficked or, or just abused or, or what all these things, how would I sit across from them and be like, I know, I know because I have been there. That's what Jesus did for us. He suffered so that he can say, I know. And if we do not experience some type of suffering, then it's not that we are not Christian enough. Like, praise God for the people who have never experienced any type of abuse or any type of this. Like, praise God. Like, that is awesome. But I believe that people that have suffered, it's not because you did anything wrong. It's not because you are the least of what God sees his children. Like, it's not because you are not destined for, for glory and for bringing glory to God. It's because he wants to use you in the most amazing way. And to be honest, factually, we live in a broken world and we, we will experience suffering. The Bible says like, not if you experience suffering, but when you experience suffering, take heed, I have overcome the world. So we just wait. We just wait for that day of overcoming. 
Uh, what I love about the Lord is that He instills desires in our heart. And I love that you, when you prayed that prayer, you said, I will dance for you. Um, so why don't you share what you are passionate about these days? Yeah, um, I think as you get older, your passions change. But number one, I will always be passionate about whatever God puts in front of me. So, you know, I'm a wife and I'm a, a mom. And sometimes I feel, as probably other people do, that, you know, all those ways and the directions that you're pulled makes you a failure at, at those things that the God, God gave you first. So I'm really working on that, like trying to be present and and knowing that the people he's put right in my home are first. And then after that, you know, I'm still very passionate about dance and the, and the wonderful place that God has given me at Identity and, and, and the opportunity to pour into young people and, and to teach other people how to pour into young people, not just me do it by myself, but, but give them the tools that they need to, to be able to pray or to be able to sit with somebody. Um, I don't think that will ever die from me. But in the last couple of years, God has really birthed new passions in me, which I didn't think would happen. Um, I thought that dance was kind of it for me for the rest of my life. And in the last several years, just through sharing my story, I've really become passionate about um, sitting across from somebody and hearing their story and, and, and telling them that their story matters and that they can heal. And, you know, earlier I said there's no A, B, and C, but, you know, with with 180, I do have three things that I think I see every time I sit across from somebody, and that is, number one, everybody can heal from what you've been through. You are not an exception. Like, you are not the one that's never going to heal. Like, that's the enemy saying that to you. You can heal, um, even if you spend the rest of your life in that process of healing. You can and will heal, and God wants to heal you. And then the second thing is that you can live fully, like, with a passion for something. Like, God has given you a passion, and I love to um, sit across from somebody and listen to what they're passionate about, just like you are with me. Like, I love it when I hear somebody say, I really want to do art, or I, I want to I wanna go to school for counseling, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. I love that because I think the enemy really tries to derail us from the things we're passionate about. And then thirdly is I think that I see this all the time, and I saw it first in myself, is that you do not believe you can love again or be loved the way that God intended love, and you can. And I am living proof that I can forgive not only myself, but everybody who's ever wronged me. Um, I can be loved. I can receive love from my husband, from my kids, and from friends and family. I can do that healthily without a ton of walls up that I, that don't trust anyone. Um, I just believe that ultimately, like, we are all on this earth in order to love and to be loved. I mean, what are the, what are the two greatest commandments? To love God with all your heart and to love people as yourself. So, Love is huge in that, right? And and because God wants us to live our life to the full, like love is such a huge part of that. And I think we think that love needs to be really like fluffy and everything needs to just kind of be um, like love covers a multitude of sins. So then love just needs to be this like 
cap that we put on everything as Christians. Like, well, if we don't love, then we shouldn't be walking in a situation. But ultimately, I believe that the, the thing that God demonstrates is that in his love, even, there was pain. In his love for the world, he had to sacrifice his son. In his love for us, he had to watch the thing that was very dear to him suffer. So as we learn more about what that word love means and and really go back to what the Bible says love is and not what the world has said love is now, is that we look at love sometimes does hurt and it's okay because there um, there is good that can come out of that. Mm. Man, preach it, girl. Holy moly. (laughs) It was so good. Um, Lindsay, man, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know that ladies are going to want to connect with you via social, via your website. Why don't you give us some shout outs on where they can connect you and reach you? Yeah, um, I'm always um, just totally an open book. So people want to get me on my personal one. I have, um, you know, just Lindsay Cooper on Facebook and then on Instagram, we're just Cooper Fam, F-A-M, like like a short for family, and then Cooper Fam 5. And then uh, I do have several Instagrams listed on my Cooper Fam 5 uh, bio, but the one that I am really passionate about right now, one we probably is – more linking to what we talked about today is, is my 180 Instagram. And that's uh, just the, the number one, but spelled out O N E and then underscore 80 spelled out A R E I G H T Y. And then the number is one eight zero. And you can find me. And that is really just a place where I try to, um, walk out what I'm going through personally and give hope to people in their feed. So, that's just a really great place to connect with me. And I really do see um, God having given me the passion to sit across from other people and hear their story. So if people have a story and they want to have coffee with somebody, I will absolutely do it. Well, thank you yeah. so much for the gift of your time today and your transparency sure. and you're willing to go into detail. Um, I am so pumped to see what God's going to do in your story as he continues to write it. But thank you so much. Amen. We appreciate you. Absolutely. Girl, what a story Lindsay has. I love what she said when she encouraged us with, everyone can heal. And that you can live fully with a passion in your life. And for those of you that don't believe that you can be loved again, you absolutely can. Do you know what one of my most favorite things in the whole wide world is? To connect with you in person. So I am thrilled to share my long-awaited secret that our Hope Women's Conference is coming your way. Hope 107.9 FM welcomes keynote speaker Bo Stern Brady to the third annual Hope Women's Conference, May 1st and 2nd, 2020 at Life Community Church in Corvallis. Bo is the co-founder of Sheology, an author, a speaker, a pastor, and a mom. And during this two-day conference, we hope to inspire you to live out the story God is writing in your life. Joining Bo will be Sam Kelly, radio host from The Scott and Sam Show, heard every afternoon on Hope 1079 FM. She's a wife and she's a mother. So girl, what are you waiting for? Grab your tickets at bringingherhope.com. Hey friend, if you are enjoying this podcast, then the best way to let us know that is by taking a moment to give us a review. By giving us a review, it allows us to keep bringing you more content each week. Also, if you love this week's podcast, take a screenshot of it and post it on Instagram and tag us, bringing her hope. We always love to know who's listening. 
Well, we can't wait to share another story of God's redemption next time. But until then, lovelies, keep living brave stories for Jesus. 